Shall we? Uh, to uh, I want to turn to two places actually. Uh, we're still continuing in our morning Zechariah series. Um, despite Paul being away, we're going to read through Zechariah chapter seven today. Uh, that is on page nine five three. If you're using the church Bibles in front of you, but once you found your way to there, put your finger in there and turn over to James chapter one, which is on page 1213, if you're using the church Bible. So, Zechariah 7 and James 1. Let's read James 1 first, from verse 19. This is what God's Word says. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But... The man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And then over to Zechariah 7, reading from verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. So this is two years after that night of eight visions. The people of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were, were, were settled? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another, 
Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. And this is how they made the pleasant land desolate. Amen. This is God's word. Well, Sally. Sally turns up at church every week. She's on time. She sits in her usual seat, uh, sings with great enthusiasm, gives some money to the work of the church, gladly, smiles as the pastor preaches, and uh, chats with her friends afterwards. On the surface, she is a faithful sister whose commitment is commendable. But what if I told you that her motivation for doing all of these things is selfish? What if I told you that the reason she is so committed to church life was because she values the favor of people and the favor of God so much that she fears that if she didn't come to church and didn't do the things that church people do, she would be rejected by people and rejected by God. And for for her, that would mean loneliness. And what if I told you that loneliness is one of her greatest fears? What if I told you that for her, loneliness is hell for her, and heaven is company and friendship and feeling valued? Sally isn't real. I've made her up. But I would go so far as to say that she represents many men and women who sit in church, maybe here, certainly throughout this nation, week after week after week, representing the kind of people who enjoy the company of other members in that church more than true fellowship with God. She's the kind of person, perhaps, who enjoys her breakfast actually more than she enjoys being nourished by God's Word. Why are you here this morning? What brings you to a place like this to do the kind of things that we have already been doing and to currently sit now for the next however long? That's just to keep you on your seats, you know. Why are you here? What's your motivation? I think these are the questions that we are encouraged to think through and meditate on this morning in Zechariah chapter 7. And what I want to do is just map out for us where we're going. There are two main things really that I want to say. Uh, Number one, false religion is motivated by a desire to serve self. And secondly, true religion 
is motivated by a desire to serve God and others. Really simple. Verses 1 to 3 in Zechariah 7 help to set the scene for us. Uh, Essentially, the rebuilding work in Jerusalem is continuing. The temple itself is only two years from completion, so they're making good headway on that. But even even though it's not completed, it's functioning. Uh, There are priests and prophets ministering there, and uh, there are those who have been living in exile, have been gathered back into Israel and into Jerusalem. They're returning. They are, they're kind of resetting themselves with what it means to be Israel, what it means to be the people of God in God's land. And in verse 3, we have a delegation who are thinking about their religious observance of certain fasts. So they ask, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done so many years? Here's why they ask that question. The day of fasting that they refer to was one of four days that, that were introduced to mark the events of the fall of Jerusalem 70 years earlier, when they were carried off into slavery by their invaders. And on this particular day that, that they inquired about, this fast they inquired about, was put in place to mark the very day when the temple was absolutely ransacked, stones all fallen down and uh, everything that could be burnt was burnt. Everything that couldn't be burnt was at least knocked down. And the reason behind their request then is, is pretty simple. It relates to the building of the second temple. So they're asking, should we keep on fasting over the old temple now that we've nearly got a new temple? And although, here's the interesting thing. Although this group come with what seems to be a genuine inquiry God responds then with a response for all people uh, and responds to their question actually just with some probing questions of his own. And his intention really is to show them uh, what I want us to see in our first point, false religion being motivated by the desire to serve serve self. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Read them with me. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me? That you fasted, and when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Well, what they called fasting, friends, was not uh, true fasting. And this is what we see in this section that even the wrong motivation, even for religious practice, will actually lead to unacceptable worship worship that God cannot and will not receive. So what they are calling fasting really was not true fasting. God introduced fasting, of course, into the life, the worship life of his people in order to encourage them to acknowledge their helplessness and to acknowledge the sure and certain hope that they had in God as their provider in all things. True fasting is basically aimed at repentance and reorientation. It's supposed to put God and us in our respective places. So God on the throne and us really in worship on our faces. And anything other than that really is, is just self-deluded. And these guys were apparently self-deluded because God, by asking the question, highlights for us that their religious observance was empty. It was just empty. It was devoid of meaning. It was practice and practice alone. Those questions that the Lord asks show us that. Their fasts were not God-centered. They were self-centered. 
I think underlying this, they were probably just feeling sorry for their predicament, so they fasted. Or it was just something that everyone else was doing, and so they fasted. But sadly, they were not sorry for the land that was so precious to them, so tied up with their identity as a nation, a land that, that was no longer flowing with milk and honey, as it were, but left desolate because of their sin. They are entirely missing the point about what they should be fasting over. They're not sorry for the sin that had resulted, in other words, in this expulsion from the land. And as a result, the indictment on them in this text is basically, you're making the same mistakes your fathers made all those years ago. You're, making this, you're now coming back into the land, and you're making the same mistakes that caused the Lord to eject them from that land, expel them from that land, and enter into this time of exile. It says so down in verses 11 to 14. Verses 11 and 12 tell us they didn't listen to or obey God, their fathers, that is. And God was therefore angry with them. Verse 14 says explicitly, I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations, where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how, who? They. They made the pleasant land desolate. So you see, the problem was not with the outward aspects of what these men were doing and these people were doing generally, but with the, the inner aspect of what they were doing, with their motivation behind what they were doing. It was not for the Lord. They had not come to submit themselves to him, to repent of their rebellion and their disobedience, to renew their commitment to him and express their need for him as a heavenly father who provides such blessing for his people. They just go through religious acts. Maybe we do the same, do we? Do we? What's our motivation for coming here? What's our motivation for sitting here and for doing the kind of things that we do in church? I think there are generally three main reasons why people do what they do. Maybe this is why they did what they did in this in terms of their religious observance by keeping these fasts. Sometimes it's just to get things from God like he's some kind of heavenly shopkeeper. People come with a list of wants and because they think, uh, and they fast, and because they fast and because they do all these certain religious things, they think God owes them. But that's unacceptable to God. That's unacceptable worship before God because that takes our acts and what should be worshipful and loving and humble and really just turns the whole thing into a business transaction. And in other words, that means God is only giving us then what we deserve and that's unacceptable to God who delights to give his children free gifts. Alternatively, maybe some here, maybe these guys in Zechariah 7 are coming to, to try and pacify God. I've heard of that before, certainly. Like God is some kind of volatile and senseless deity, needs to be stroked and fed with religious activity in order to keep his anger in abeyance or in order to keep him calm. But that's unacceptable to God, again, and so far from the truth concerning his loving nature. Lastly, maybe we or maybe they are fasting simply to obtain praise from others. They may not care 
one iota about what God thinks about them, actually, as long as their neighbor thinks well of them. And that's good enough for them. It's kind of like what Rodney was reading to us about earlier uh, in the, the, the parable of the, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. You know, there was very much an outward show. Oh, it's not for God's benefit at all. The wrong motivation was fueling that religious act. But that and that kind of thing is unacceptable to God. Jesus warns us against such Pharisaic living. Mark 12, in another passage referring to that, they like to walk around in long robes and respectful, like the respectful greetings in the marketplaces, the chief seats in synagogues, the places of honor at banquets, and, and yet they devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. How, how attractive for us, isn't it, is the praise of men. How attractive is the, the, the joy of a, of a good reputation. How strong that love. We will dress for it. In other words, hence the long robes. We will swagger in public to draw that attention, position ourselves at parties to receive it, even lengthen our prayers so that people will think, aren't they great? But religious camouflage, and that's what that is, may hide reality from another person that you are worshipping alongside, but not from God. That that's unacceptable worship and will not be received. Is God a shopkeeper to you then? If your prayer life really only kicks in in times of need and lacks generous stretches of praise and adoration for who God is in himself, like as we were thinking about at the start of our service from Colossians 1, then maybe he is to you. Is God someone you feel the need to pacify? If you think, well, I better go to church, I better do this, or I better pray, or I better do this and that, or God might not let me into heaven, you just might be. Or is he merely a badge that you wear to make yourself look good? In other words, if your life falls apart when someone criticizes you, or if your anxiety soars when you think people don't think well of you, then maybe he is just a badge. We can be motivated too easily by the wrong desires, brothers and sisters. And we need to take great care in this life. Because if our daily lives have little or nothing to do with God himself, it's unacceptable to him. We may be self-deluded. If we're coming to church, doing good, reading the Bible, praying and fasting, it means nothing if it is not done for God and for his pleasure, for his glory, with the right motivation. Anything else is just religious observance. But on the other hand of that, here's a positive application of this, okay? It, this actually means that it dignifies all that we do that is truly motivated by a love for God and by a desire to glorify Him. So it means that when we come like this today and we worship him with humility, with sincerity and love, when the greatest thing that we can remember today is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that has made it possible for us to come before him like this and worship him, that we can sing Jesus with such glory and love in our hearts and think, yes, this is my life. Then that's acceptable. That's acceptable. It means that with one another, if we treat each other with dignity and respect out of a desire, even, even, 
even in relation to people who are not Christians, if we live out our lives in such a dignified and respectful way out of a, an honest and a humble desire, not to gain praise for ourselves, but praise for God because we want to humbly reflect his kind and loving and gracious character, now that's acceptable to him. And that's commendable in his sight. And even at the most practical base level, it means that the mother who toils wearily in the care of children, playing with them, teaching them, feeding them, all the while resolving to glorify God in every moment, God honors that selflessness. There is a huge amount of worship that is acceptable to him when it is offered humbly with the right motivation. So here's a question for us then. I suppose it's another diagnostic test, isn't it? How, how do we know if our practice is motivated by the right desires? And I think this brings us to our second point. True religion being motivated by the desire to serve God and neighbor. Because in the same way that the wrong motivation will lead to unacceptable worship, the wrong motivation will lead to unacceptable living. Okay? Will lead to unacceptable living. Basically, the proof is in the pudding, you know? By their fruit, you shall know them. Uh, even the, the, the passage that, that Julia referred to in her testimony, you know, what was God looking for? He's looking for fruit in the tree. Well, the extent to which we love God should be plain to see in the way we relate to other people. It's a, a, a pretty straightforward principle throughout Scripture. And from what we see in verses 8 to 10, love for God has a, has a horizontal expression among the people of God. And these verses certainly remind us that we should be loving people with our possessions, with our words, with our actions and our judgments, simply by our attitude. And that's what Jesus models for us, doesn't he? I mean, verses 8 to 10 are, are basically a short catalogue of the, the character of God as manifested for us in the life of Jesus Christ who came into this world to make God known, being the Son of God himself. And these are the things that he cares about, and these are the things that he calls us and encourages us to care about as well. Look at verse 9. Administer true justice, he says. Just deal with each other fairly and honestly. Justice is about right living and right relationships. Verse 9 continues, show mercy and compassion to one another. So see someone in need, go and help. Show kindness. Or maybe we feel hurt by someone sinning against us. We can be merciful in, the, in what we show, choosing to absorb the pain of that sin, not holding grudges that, that wedge us apart from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And in... And resolving not to repay evil with evil. Then there's verse 10. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Never oppress the vulnerable. Refuse to mistreat or walk all over those who are in a weak position, either financially or socially. It's too easy to manipulate people who are in those categories. Or verse 10, as it continues, in your hearts, do not think evil of each other. The very thought of doing something wrong to the detriment of a brother or sister should be troubling to us. And there's no doubt, based on the tone of this passage and the questions that the Lord has asked, 
that this is also an indictment on the people. It's convicting for them to hear. And I wonder if it is for us in terms of the way we live our lives. But as I said earlier, the sad thing is they keep making the same mistakes their fathers made. Israel just making the same mistakes over and over again, despite the fact that, as God said, in this passage in verses 8 to 14, through his word, through the former prophets, he has spoken clearly. Through the law, he has made himself known and made what he wants done known. He has shown them what is true and acceptable worship. He has shown them what it is to love God and love neighbor. And he has cemented those things into the very foundation of what it means to be the people of God. Are these things cemented into our foundation as a church? If so, is it obvious to people? Is it obvious to you concerning the brothers or sisters you have interaction with? The people that you come into contact with? I hope it is. Is it evident for those who are not part of our church? But as they look in on us, do they see us loving God and loving others? Do we attract through that or do we repel? Because we are to be displaying God's character and grace in these situations. There's a warning in here, isn't there? Because it's not just that the wrong motivation leads to unacceptable living, it's that unacceptable living is what leads to judgment and led to exile for them. Again, look at verses 11 to 14. Verse 11 says, They, this is their forefathers, refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs. Is that what we do? The ESV in there says, they turned a stubborn shoulder, which I think better reflects what's going on there. It's a farming analogy, basically. In those days, a farmer would take an animal, place a yoke over the neck and across its shoulders in order to enable the farmer to guide the animal and to steer it in the direction that he wanted it to go. But if an animal, like an ox, say, did not want to be yoked or bridled, if you like, controlled in this way, all it had to do was either pull one or two shoulders back or to straighten out its neck and just tense up. And it would be impossible for the farmer to get it on. But in God's eyes, this is what his people have been doing. They have been stiff-necked. They have been stubborn. They've turned that stubborn shoulder and refused to be led, refused to be steered by God. They have refused to bow their heads in humility and be yoked. And as a result, these people were judged and exiled because they stopped obeying. These people were judged and exiled because they stopped obeying. Verse 11 continues. They stopped up their ears. Isn't this what we already saw in James chapter 1 uh, that I read before our Zechariah passage earlier? James 1 tells us that, that God's people need their ears flushed <laughs> to get rid of all the moral filth that deafens us to God's saving word. They use the word filth there in James chapter 1. And in that, that same word in Greek, riparia, was used by doctors in those early days to refer to, guess what? Earwax. Gross. Uh, I never thought I'd ever mention earwax in a sermon. There you go. And that's what they needed. They needed. Their ears were stopped up. 
but it wasn't a medical condition, it was a spiritual condition. They, by their moral filth, had clogged up their ears. They refused to listen to the word of God and refused to do what it said. Verse 12 continues, they made their hearts hard as flint. The ESV said they made their hearts diamond hard. Diamond hard. For centuries and centuries, diamond has been known to be the hardest natural material known. Its name, of course, is derived from the Greek word adamas, which basically means unbreakable. So God is speaking words of life, extending mercy and grace, but they're so self-centered, these people, so motivated by the wrong desires, they would not listen and they would not care. And the people of God were judged and exiled because they hardened their hearts. Listen, friends, this is, this is the message we need to get from this today, that the wrong motivation will lead to unacceptable, in, in our, the wrong motivation will lead to unacceptable worship. That the wrong motivation will lead to unacceptable living. And consequently, unacceptable living will lead similarly to judgment. That's what verse 12b goes on to say. So the Lord Almighty was angry. The Lord is not pleased by such unacceptable worship. And those of us who are here who are true believers, we rest assured in the fact that we don't experience God's anger and God's wrath in a final judgment sense. No, through trusting in Jesus Christ and by receiving the imputation of his righteousness to our account, we will not face that final judgment. God would be unjust in taking us as Christians through that because his wrath, his anger, has been spent on Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for us. But Hebrews 4 does tell us that we will experience discipline and that the Lord disciplines those he loves. And perhaps we're convicted by what we've been hearing this morning. Our, if that is the case, we should be resting in Christ as we repent again and trust in his grace to walk in his ways and follow him all the more. We have a Savior who has dealt with all of our failures. We have a Savior who has paid the penalty for all of our sin. We have a Savior who has bore our wrath in himself, on his body, on that tree when he died, so that we don't need to experience that. And so that we don't need to walk through our lives in fear of that. Yet for those who are not yet Christians, maybe here today, really glad you're here. You're very welcome with us. The reason why we talk like this and walk through the Bible like this is because it tells us such an important message that we feel must be heard. That empty religious observance is a menace to our souls, is as menacing to our souls as no religious observance is. It's a menace to our souls because it deceives us to our danger. It tells us we're headed for heaven when in fact we're bound for hell. What we need, what we need is God. What we need is God's help and God's grace. 
And this is what I want us to see just in closing that true obedience is truly motivated by the gospel of grace. That true religion starts and continues in loving God's answer to the problem of our sin and the problem of our waywardness and the immense problem of our puffed up selves and our self-centeredness. We have another name for this true religion. We call it the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who, the one who lived a sinless life in perfect obedience, the one who, when facing the prospect of a tortuous death on a cross, as he prayed about that in a garden called Gethsemane before he went to the cross, did not turn a stubborn shoulder, did not stiffen his neck and refused to be yoked, but prayed, let your will be done to his heavenly father as he took upon that yoke that would steer him to a cross on Calvary where he would die in love, the perfect demonstration of love and of selflessness so that we could come to him. And that our greatest problems, our greatest difficulties would be swept away and that we would not be given what we do deserve but be given what we didn't deserve, life, salvation, and rescue. Heaven, not hell. He did not turn a stubborn shoulder. He paid the penalty for our stubborn disobedience. He made it possible for us to have the moral filth removed once and for all. And for our diamond hard hearts, those unbreakable hearts, to be broken. Broken. He shed his blood. He absorbed God's anger and won for us the prospect of forgiveness in life. So Sally's wrong. Those of us who come with the wrong motivation, we, we're wrong to come and say, accept me, I'm good, and I'm worth saving. No, that's unacceptable. That's religion. But the gospel says, accept me. I am bad, but Christ has died for me. I am worth nothing but my worth is in him. And for the way we live our lives as believers in true worship before him, we don't go through the Sally motions. We go through gospel motions. We are motivated by God's grace. It's not try harder now. You're not going out of here for me to say to you, try harder. And then maybe God will accept you. No. God accepts you when you come to him trusting in Christ alone. And on the basis of that, his finished perfect work, you go out and live to the glory of God. He motivates you by his grace and he supplies you with grace and energy to labor for him and love others and love him. So my call to you this morning, if you're a believer, it's repent. It's repent. Repent of your of your worthless striving in order to earn his favor. 
and trust in his grace. Live for him, motivated by that. He loves you. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, my encouragement for you is kind of the same. Repent. Turn to him. Your life need not be empty religious observance or else entirely devoid of God. He's died to make himself known that you might love him and know life and life eternal. Repent, turn to him, receive his free gift of grace. Let's pray. Lord, help us all to get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent in us and humbly accept this word spoken from your word which can save us. Help us not to listen to the word and so deceive ourselves. Help us to do what it says. Help us not to forget but to look intently into this perfect word that gives freedom. And let our lives show it, that we are yours, that we love you and are motivated by that love alone and not motivated by anything selfish, but only to glorify your name. Humble us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.